Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Great to see you, great to worship with you here at the West Campus. Uh, hello to all of you joining us at the South Campus, at the Fort Worth Campus, and certainly all of you who are streaming uh, from wherever you are. So glad that you've chosen to spend a part of your weekend uh, with the Christ Chapel family. Uh, love that we get to do this. Uh, this is super special uh, for me, but I think really good and healthy for our entire church. Uh, just the, the unification that we get to celebrate uh, worshiping together as being one church in multiple locations. And uh, just a quick, I, w I gotta say this out loud uh, for everybody to hear, quick shout out to our IT team and our technical arts team and all the folks that have coordinated this stuff. They've worked so hard uh, to enable that. And so super thankful for them. But we are going to study God's word. I had an interesting conversation this past weekend uh, with a guy that was asking me about some questions about why we say certain things. And I know one of the things that we say is study God's word, and that kind of sounds a little bit different. That's like, I don't really want to go to school. It's summer, Cody. Why do I want to study? But the reason why we study is because we need to correctly understand what God's word says. And sometimes we have to dig a little bit deeper than just taking a, a cursory or a surface understanding of what it sounds like it's saying. That's why we study. We dig deep because if we misunderstand something, then that means we're gonna misapply something. If we have a misinterpretation, we're gonna have an incorrect application. And you know this to be true because you experience these uh, misunderstandings in your life, or at least, let me say, I do. I'll tell you of a common one that I have uh, in my home. Uh, when I can tell that there's something wrong uh, with my wife, Jen, I say, Jen, are you doing okay? And she says, I'm fine. Now, listen, I have been married long enough to know that she's not fine, okay? So I don't misinterpret or misunderstand that. I know that I'm fine means ask me again, okay? I get it. So I ask her again, Jen, are you sure you're okay? And she says, I don't want to talk about it. And so what do I do? I leave her alone. I, I'm like, this is my exit. Like, I, I leave and I leave her alone. Wrong application, Okay? Misunderstanding, misinterpretation leads, leads to wrong application. And that's what we're, this leads to the passage that we're gonna be talking about today because the passage that we're going to study, and I mean study, is a passage that has been misunderstood and misinterpreted so much so that the misapplication of it, the incorrect applications are egregious. I've seen it break relationships. I've seen it shipwreck faiths. Uh, we've got to understand what his word says so that we can correctly apply it because chances are this hasn't just happened to someone else. You, I, may have even fallen into some of these traps sometimes of misinterpreting what this passage says. So if you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 uh, verses 14 to 21, we're continuing our series inside out, where I want you to see through this whole series that our outward actions are really driven by our inward motivations. That's the whole idea of this inside out uh, kind of theme that we're carrying through here, because I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And last week, what we covered was the cost of discipleship. And if you'll remember, we talked about if you follow him to death, then you'll follow him to life. 
That's the cost of discipleship. If we say we're following him, then we're going to follow in his ways. And his way was to lay down his life, and then God raised him from the dead. That's where he found abundant and eternal life. Well, right after that passage, and I touched on this last week, is the transfiguration. Remember where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, there's two places that people think that it could have been. Uh, the, the left side without the snow, that's Mount Tabor. The one on the right is Mount Hebron or Hebron, however you want to say it. Now, these are the two thoughts. I think it's Mount Tabor where the transfiguration happened, but just to cover all my bases, I wanted you to have all the interpretations up here, okay? So this is where he probably went. And another reason why I, did, why I wanted to show you this was because I wanted you to see that when we talk about the Mount of Transfiguration, it's different than the Mount of Beatitudes. Uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, if you remember me showing you that, that was like a hill, okay? This is kind of like a Texas mountain, Mount Tabor, you know? We would call that a mountain here. So he takes them up to the Mount of Transfiguration. He transfigures before them. He shows them his transcendent glory. In fact, he begins to talk with Moses and Elijah. And Peter then says, we need to build three tabernacles, three booths for you so that we can represent both, all three of you and worship you here. And then Moses and Elijah disappear. Jesus is standing alone. And then they hear the voice of the Father that says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's time to stop listening to Moses and Elijah. Listen to him. At that point, Jesus is established there. He's already been confessed by Peter, now by the Father again, just like his baptism in Matthew chapter three. He is established as supreme. He is not equal with Moses and Elijah in authority, he is superior, supreme to all of those. This is my son. Listen to him. So it's this, this great moment on the mount of transfiguration. And then right after that, they go into the valley. And that's where we're going to pick up today. I want to read this whole passage before we break it down, just so that you'll understand the context. So uh, just follow along with me, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they, they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And may God bless the reading of his word, and may our hearts be open to hear from him. Chances are, after reading that passage, you already know what the misunderstanding is, right? Raise your hand. You understand kind of what this misunderstanding is. The way this has been misinterpreted throughout the years, throughout the centuries, has been as long as you can have faith, enough faith, you can do anything you want. Nothing is impossible for you. And this always gets applied specifically to healing. 
that, hey, as long as you have enough faith, healing can happen. And you can imagine how dangerous that is. How many uh, saints of the faith, heroes of the faith, have had chronic illness? How many wonderful people that, that I know have had children die and go to the Lord? And I go, did they not have enough faith? Like, come on. Seriously, that, that sorry guys, that, that drives me crazy because that does so much emotional and spiritual damage to people. That is not what this passage is saying. This is why we need to study it to understand it. I, I wanna tell you what the point is not of this passage, and then I'll tell you what the point is before we go and break it down and study it in depth. First, this passage is not about healing. It's, it's not about healing. Jesus uses a miracle of healing in order to teach a message. But it's not about healing. It's about the message. You see, Jesus uses the means of miracles to teach a message. And the message specifically, I'll go ahead and give you the answer. The message specifically is twofold. First, to Israel, to believe in him. And the second, to the disciples, to depend on him. That's the point of this passage. It's not about healing. Healing is the means by which he teaches that message. And we, we know this intuitively, because if you look back at all the other miracles, we don't think the miracles that Jesus performs are about those miracles per se, that they're prescriptive for how we are supposed to perform miracles ourselves. I mean, just think about it. I mean, the wedding at Canaan, I mean, when he turns water into wine, that isn't about, you know, vinification. We, we, don't, we don't think that. Nobody goes and goes, okay, if you have enough faith, turn that water into wine. No, nobody says that. No, the walking on water, that's not a lesson in recreational water sports, okay? This, the, nobody takes those and thinks it's about that specific miracle and how we are supposed to do that in our everyday lives. The feeding of the 5,000, it's not about catering. It's not, it's not about how to feed a bunch of people. This, there's always a message or a lesson that he's using the miracle to teach and to point people back to him. So the point of this is not healing, although he does heal. The point is believe in him and depend on him. And I wanna show you that throughout this, this passage because this is really about the faith that he wants Israel to place in him and the faith that he wants the disciples to put in him. And so faith is gonna be the theme that's gonna run throughout the outline. And when I say faith, I've given you a biblical definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verses one and six, that's at the bottom of your sermon notes. You can use that for reference later. But I'm gonna give you, for the sake of our conversation today and, and this study, I'm gonna give you Cody's definition, just Cody's definition. Faith is believing God is who he says he is and depending on him to do what he says he can do. Very simple, just very simple. He is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he's going to do. And so what we're gonna do is I want you to understand this passage and how it's pointing to the faith that he wants us to have in him. I'll give you some lessons or some principles about that faith, that biblical faith that he calls us to, and then we'll apply it to our lives, all within a matter of minutes. A lot to do today. But I want to break this down for you. And first, I want you to see is Jesus encountered authentic faith from an unlikely person. 
Jesus encountered authentic faith from an unlikely person. So Jesus literally and figuratively comes down from this mountaintop experience and he comes into the valley and he encounters a a man who has a sick child. Now, I don't think the child has done anything wrong to be sick. If you will, write down John chapter nine and go back and study that later. So this does not mean that maladies point to fault, okay? Just because he has an infirmity doesn't mean that he has done something wrong. But this boy, for some reason, seems to be possessed. And we learn from other synoptic gospels, which I'll reference throughout this sermon, that the boy had been this way since childhood. So there's been a lot, this has been a long-term thing. This has been a chronic for this child. And the father brings him to the disciples, and the disciples cannot heal this boy, which is very odd, because if you'll remember some of the stuff that we studied in John, I mean, uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus gave the disciples authority to do what? To do what? To heal. To cast out demons, thank you, guys. I am literally here. We can talk, okay? <laughs> All right? So he gave them authority to be able to heal, to cast out demons. So why can they not do it now? There, there's some different, different thoughts uh, about why, why they couldn't. I, I've just put these down. First, it, it could have been prefunctory. They could have just been going through the motions, that, that there, was no, there was no faith involved, there was no spiritual, they were just, they, they may have treated this kind of healing authority that they got from Jesus as magic. Like they say these, they, maybe they thought they said it in Jesus' name, and so therefore everything was supposed to magically happen for them and, and appear. And none of these things are happening. But the reason why, Cody's opinion, I think they were not able to heal them is because I think they were operating off a self-sufficient faith. They, they were operating in a way that they themselves wanted the glory and they didn't want Jesus to get the glory. And the reason why I say that is because of Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Because Jesus gave authority to heal and to cast out demons, not only to those 12 disciples, but also to 72 disciples, so a larger group. Which makes sense because when they come down the mountain, remember, three of those 12 disciples are up on the mountain with Jesus of transfiguration. So there's a larger group of disciples down there. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, they come to Jesus and they go, Jesus, here's what they say. Even the demons submit to us. Now, important pronoun there, right? Right? The the demons, are they submit to whom? To us. That's what they say. And Jesus goes, hey, don't, don't rejoice that demons submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What he's saying is, don't rejoice in the things that you think you can do on your own. Rejoice in the things that only God can do for you. You can't write your name in heaven. Only God can do that. They were becoming self-sufficient in their faith. That's why I think the disciples couldn't heal that boy, and I think we get a clue later on, which I'll tell you. But the father is exactly opposite. The father is completely desperate, completely dependent. In fact, in one of the synoptics, it says that that he was begging the disciples to heal his son. Why? 
one, because he loves his son, but also we find out that this is his only son. And he is begging the disciples. And you would do the same for your own child. You would beg anything, anything, please help my kid. And he is completely and utterly dependent upon Jesus. And he comes to him and he says, Lord. Now, I don't think he's calling him Lord because he knows who Jesus is. I think he's heard about what Jesus can do. This Lord term, that's the way that it's used here, is just this sign of respect. But he kneels before him in humility and asks him to heal. And he says, your disciples can't do it. Would you? You see, he is completely and utterly dependent upon Jesus to work. That's the faith that he puts in him. You see, here's a principle about faith. Faith combines a dependency on God with a knowledge of God. Faith combines a dependency on God with a knowledge of God. See, sometimes we think that because we have more knowledge of God, we don't have to depend upon God as much. So as our knowledge increases, then our independence increases and our dependence on God decreases. That we, we don't really need him as much. We can do it on our own. And I think that's what the disciples were going on here. But when you think about the, the, the folks in this story, who knew more about Jesus? The, the dad? No, in fact, the dad was probably a Gentile. He doesn't use any specific terms here that would have pointed to him as an Israelite. Probably a Gentile. He doesn't know about the history of Jesus, doesn't know about this Messiah, the, the foretelling of who he would be, but the disciples know all about it. They know all the things that Jesus said he should be able to do and can do, yet they are the ones that lack the faith. You see, the more we know about God, the more we should know that we need to depend upon God. It reminds me of those whenever I was growing up during cartoons or you know, afternoon programming, there used to be this public service announcement called The More You Know. Do you guys remember this? It was this shooting star with a rainbow behind it, and it would say, the more you know. You know? And, and what that reminds me of, this, the more you know, the more you should depend upon God. Rather than the more you know, the more independent you become. And, and this happens in our life. I'll tell you one of the places that it happens all the time. And it's in the knowledge of knowing that God is forgiving. Because many of us think, I know God forgives. I know God is gracious. I know God is merciful. So I can go do whatever I want. So I'll just, there, there will be no consequences to that. I can indulge in that. I can be a jerk. I can do, I, I can go off into the weeds. Why? Because I know God will forgive me. All I have to do is turn around and go, please forgive me. Done. We take the knowledge of God and turn it into an independence from God. God is not giving you knowledge of him so that you would become independent of him. Listen, when he gives them authority, that does not equal autonomy. He's not wanting us. He will never move you or me to a place where we're independent of him. And that's what's going on here. This faith that he wants them to demonstrate is a knowledge of God, but it's a combination with a dependence upon God. And that's what he ends up rebuking, is this lack of faith. Jesus rebuked the distorted faith of an unbelieving generation. 
And the reason why I say distorted is because I, I wanna highlight how they did not see him clearly, which is ironic how they don't see him clearly because remember, where are we coming from? What, what's right before this context? The transfiguration, where they just saw him in all of his glory. They should, they should see him clearly and they don't see him clearly and we find this out by two questions that Jesus asks. And I think the first question he's asking to Israel and the second question he's asking to his disciples. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, and Jesus answered, this is after the father comes to him and asks him to heal his boy. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? I think that's to Israel and I'll explain. Second one, I think this is to the disciples. How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. You see, Christ did personally what the disciples could not do independently. He says, bring him here to me. And I think one of the reasons why he says, how long am I to bear with you to the disciples is because it's like, guys, I, like, <laughs> you know me. You just saw me transfigured. Why can we not figure out that you have to depend on me, that you cannot be, that you can't be independent, you can't be self-sufficient in your faith to do the things that I've called you to do? You still have to depend on me, even though you carry my name. But then to, to the other, others in the crowd, he says, oh, you twisted and faithless generation. Now, that term generation means and is used in scripture as, as a race of people that are characterized in one way or another. And I think he's talking to Israel here. Those folks that are, do not believe in him, the nation that he came to rule and reign that has now rejected him, they have distorted, distorted their faith. They're unbelieving. And it says that twisted, uh, some of your versions might say, the, some of your translations might say perverted, which just means distorted. They were explaining away everything they saw about Jesus. We know this. Uh, Jonathan Murphy talked about this earlier on in this series. In Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus casts out a demon, the Pharisees say that he did it in whose power? The devil's. <laughs> you cast out demons by the devil's power. They see something, and then they twist it. That's this twisted generation, this distorted or perverted. E even when they see the, the evidence, they twist it and distort it to say what they want it to say. That's what he's rebuking here, is that they keep asking for more evidence, but every time they see more evidence and proof of who Jesus says that he is, they turn it, they twist it, they pervert it, they distort it, what he is saying. See, he rebukes this distorted faith because faith believes what God has already revealed rather than requiring further proof. Faith believes what God has already revealed rather than requiring further proof. After the, the Pharisees, even in uh, Matthew chapter 12 there, after they see him perform that miracle, they uh, credit it to Satan rather than Jesus. Uh, guess what they asked for? Another sign, and another sign. And just, just show us one more, God. They don't believe in all the things that he's already done. They want further proof. 
Faith shows us that, hey, God has already revealed himself to us. And I could go through and I could list all of the things of, of the ways that God has proved himself to be exactly who he says he is and he's done exactly what he said he was gonna do. But the greatest example is Jesus. That, I mean, need, need we say more? That's the greatest example that he is holy, we are not, he loves us and makes a way for us to be in a right relationship with him by grace through faith. I, I mean, what, what more do, does he need to do? Yet, we all ask for more. We all ask for another sign. We, we all say, God, would you just do, I, I'll believe in you a little bit more if you'll just do a little bit more. This past year, our younger son, Hayes was in kindergarten, so he's going into first grade, but he came back from kindergarten with a, a really interesting phrase that you've all heard, and we, myself included, have all said, and I didn't, I've never taught this, he'd never heard this at home, uh, but I heard him start saying it to his brother, our older one, Dax, and Hayes started saying, Dax, if you'll do this, I'll be your best friend. <laughs> you've heard this before right? If you'll do this, I'll be your best friend. If you'll just prove yourself a little bit more, then I'll meet you halfway. I'll I'll be friends with you. You've heard this in older generations too. If you love me, you'll X. See, at, at best, this is doubting. At worst, this is manipulative. And listen, folks, God will not stand for it. God will not be manipulated by us or strong-armed into anything. He is immutable and he is unchangeable. His ways are much higher than our ways, and we cannot twist his arm into doing what we want him to do. And that's what I think is going on here and how it's been misinterpreted to go back to the beginning just very quickly, briefly is when we say it's about your amount of faith, we are trying to twist God's arm to doing what we want. And he's not gonna stand for it. He's not, he's, it's not who he is. You see, he goes back to, and he begins to describe to them the quality of faith that it's gonna take to move mountains, to do those things that the disciples were called to do. See, this is where we really get into the crux of the issue here in verses 19 to 21. Because after he heals that boy instantly and praise God for that, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, just think through this for just a second, because um, Matthew, man, every word that is recorded in Scripture is very, uh, it, it, it's important, but it, it's very purposeful. And it says the disciples came to him privately. Why do they come to him privately? Cody, Cody's thought. I think they're embarrassed. I think they were embarrassed that man, we talked ourselves up to be a big game. <laughs> like, we can do this. Like, oh, Jesus is, Jesus is up on the mountain right now. You just come to me. I, I'll, I'll heal this boy. I, I can do this. 
and then they couldn't. And so they go to him privately, which remember, there's another time where this happened, that word privately was Nicodemus, who goes to Jesus at night. Why? Because he was a Pharisee, he didn't want to be called out. There's a lot of these dynamics going on here. So they go to him privately and they say, why could we not do it? And Jesus says, it's because of your little faith. Now, we know because of the context that he's talking about here and what comes after that he can't be talking about the amount or the size, right? Because what he encourages them to do next is have the faith of a mustard seed. (laughs) And the mustard seed is super tiny. So he couldn't say that their faith is too small because he's encouraging them to have small faith. And he says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, then you could move a mountain. Now, remember the mountains that we just talked about. I mean, it's right there. Now, he's talking about this, this small sort of thing can move that big thing. Now, proverbially, a mustard seed was used to describe the smallest of objects in that ancient realm. A mountain was used proverbially to talk about something that was immovable, stable, or difficult to change, difficult to move. And what he's saying here is the quality of your faith is what is at stake. And the quality of your faith will move that mountain, will will, will move through impossible circumstances to do the possible. Now, I want to give you some background because the times that Jesus talks about the disciples having living uh, little faith is five times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. In the five times that he says, you of little faith, or talking to the disciples, it's because all of those times, they were depending upon themselves. It's the self-sufficiency. So it's about the quality of their faith. It's about the object of their faith. It's not about the amount of their faith. It's not about the quantity of their faith. He's saying, stop depending on yourselves Start depending on me. I'm the only one that, I, that can do this, which is why Jesus says, bring that boy here to me. They were not depending upon him. They were depending in their own strength, in their own chutzpah, in, in, their, in their own authority of I can do this all by myself. And Jesus says, no, you can't do it all by yourself. And a clue that I think we get to to understanding that this is about dependence upon him is because in Mark chapter 9, another parallel to the same same account, uh, Mark Mark adds a line that Jesus says to the disciples, which I think he, he said that's not included here in Matthew. He says, this kind can only come out through prayer. What is What is prayer? Prayer prayer is an overt action of dependence upon God. When I don't think I need God, I don't pray. When I know I need God, I pray. And Jesus is calling for them to be dependent. He says, this can only come out through prayer. You have to depend upon him. You can't just say the magic words, abracadabra, and do whatever you want. It doesn't, the faith, the things that God is calling us to, they they don't happen that way. You have to depend upon him. But the other thing that happens with prayer 
It's not just that we overtly declare our dependence upon him, but it also aligns our will to his will. That, that's what it does. See, faith focuses on fulfilling God's will in God's way so that God is most glorified, not us. Not us. So that we don't rejoice and go, the demons are subject to us. Woo! You know? Chest puffed out. Throw the rack down, you know? That's what, that's what we wanted. And that's not it. That's not, the, that's not the dependence upon God. But when we make him the object of our faith, then the impossible can happen. And we know that to be true. We've seen him do the impossible all throughout scripture. And folks, if we're honest, we've seen him do the impossible in our own lives. And one of those impossible things is saving us. <laughs> Calling us his own? That's, that's impossible. Except with him. He, he does the impossible when he is the object of the faith. And we are aligning our will to his will. You see, folks, faith is not a weapon to be used against God. It's a weapon to be used for God. For God's will to occur. Not for my will to occur. Not to say, God, I had faith, so you better... Wrong type of relationship to have with God. That's not what this passage is saying. What he's calling Israel to do, what he's calling the disciples to do, is to believe in him and depend upon him. And so what I want to do is give you three very quick applications here. Whether you're on the mountain or in the valley, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're facing mountains right now. All he's asking for you to do is to have that mustard seed of faith. The quality, meaning just making him the object, because out of that small mustard seed, did you know mustard seeds could, could they grow mustard plants, which grow from 12 to 15 feet? These great things spring up out of this little seed of faith. And you might not feel like you have enough faith. I want to remind you of what the father says, uh, the father of the little boy in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus, he says, can you heal this boy? And Jesus says, can I? Don't you? Of course I can. And the father says, well, then I, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, again, it points back to it's not the amount. It's the object. It's not the quantity. It's the quality. So I don't know where you are or what you're facing, but I want you to not put your faith in yourself, but put your faith in God's character by focusing on his faithfulness. Put your faith in God's character by focusing on his faithfulness. And let me say this. Do not, do not let your circumstances define God's character. Your circumstances do not define God's character. God is who he says he is. And he is good and he is faithful and he is true. And you might say, I don't see it right now, Cody. I get it. And I fall back on something a mentor told me a long time ago. When you can't see his hand moving, trust his heart. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart. His character is good. And we see it all the time throughout scripture. Second, put your faith in God's ability by relying on his power. I, I want to say this quickly. I, 
one of the things I want you to take away from this sermon is that God is able to do the impossible. I, I don't want you to hear me downplay his power or his ability in any way. We pray for the impossible all the time. And we see God do the impossible all the time. So he has great ability and great power, but we have to align our will to his will. And that's the last, is put your faith in God's will by submitting your plans to him. We talked last week about the hardest person in the world to deny is ourselves. We are the hardest people to deny. (laughs) Which means the hardest thing to probably say is not my will, but thy will be done. And that's what Jesus said. And God worked it together for his good and our good. And God can do the same in your life, in our life. And that's the impossible. That's the mountain that can move, is that God can work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God can heal in ways that glorify him, like we talked about and referenced in John chapter 9. So I don't know where you are today, but would you make him the object of your faith? And if you said, Cody, I only got a little, that's okay. You just say, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he's there to pick you up. Just bring it there to him. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that the things that we want to see in our lives, in our world, are not dependent upon us. Thank you, Lord God, that that burden doesn't rest on my shoulder because I don't have enough faith. I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough stamina. I I can't do it on my own, and I thank you that you're not asking any of us to do it on our own. You're not asking any of us to conjure up enough faith, enough emotion, enough knowledge, enough anything. You're just asking us to come to you and to admit that we can't do it on ourselves. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to believe that you are who you say you are and to depend on you to do what you say you'll do. And we ask it in Jesus' name.